Bishop and author William Willimon tells of an encounter he once had with a dying woman. She was in the last stages of lung cancer, gasping day after day for breath, and it was obvious that she was in great pain and she was exhausted from the fight. She clutched a crucifix every day. It had been given to her by her grandmother when she was a very little girl, and it had been carved by a monk in Europe. It was, of course, a symbol of her Catholic faith and all that that meant to her. When he entered the room that afternoon, he could see she was very near the end of her life. And so he said, would you like me to pray for you? Would you like me to summon a priest? And with her last ounce of energy, she held out the crucifix toward him, which of course depicts the body of Christ nailed to the cross. And she said to him, thank you, but I have a priest. Thank you, but I have a priest. She's right. It is Jesus Christ. And he is our great high priest. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 through 16. And you've already really had the scripture reading in song this morning. Thanks to Lois. But I'll read it in prose here in in word, all right? Since then we have, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So run to the priest who feels your pain. One of the great themes of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ is our high priest. He is uniquely qualified to be our priest because he has suffered as a man and he knows exactly what we experience as humans so he can lovingly care for us as our high priest. Jesus knows what you have been through and he knows what you are going through right now. He has been there and he is here. He is a priest who truly understands your pain. He can meet your deepest needs because he has walked this road already. Since we have a priest who has gone before us, we can pledge our allegiance to his cross. We have a great high priest, the text says, who has gone through the heavens... The Greek construction tells us that Jesus has gone through the heavens in the past with continuing results for our lives today. Because Jesus has passed this way on our behalf, he can meet our needs with his care. And because he has ascended into the heavens, he can meet our needs on earth. The high priest in the Old Testament passed through the tabernacle one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He would enter from where the sacrifice was performed in the outer court with the blood 
And he would pass through the entryway into the holy place, and from there he would pass through one day a year into the Holy of Holies to the mercy seat between the cherubim in the center of the tabernacle. And there he would sprinkle the blood to make atonement once a year for the sins of the people. Jesus has passed through. He has passed through earth's existence. He has risen to heaven. In fact, through the heavens to the Holy of Holies, the home of God himself. He came to this earth to die on the cross. His blood made atonement for our sins. He has passed through the heavens. And the Israelites, you see, talked of multiple heavens, so it's, it's plural here, because passing through the heavens means he's gone all the way through to the very holy place of God, where his blood has made atonement for our sins as our great high priest. Philippians, Paul wrote in Philippians 2, 8, and 9, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 10, He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. The Son of God came down from heaven to this earth to die on the cross for our sins. He returned to heaven having atoned for our sins and later Hebrews would tell us once for all time the power of the cross is that Christ cleanses us with his blood. The fact that he ascended into the heavens means that he can be our perfect high priest who has atoned for our sins because a priest represents us to God. He is the perfect priest. He is the perfect one to represent us to God. With our needs, our infirmities, our weaknesses, our sins, our sufferings, our struggles, he can represent them all to God in the Holy of Holies because of his cross work. Some years ago, a 14-foot bronze crucifix was stolen from Calvary Cemetery in Little Rock, Arkansas. It had stood at the entrance to that cemetery for more than 50 years. The cross was put there in 1930 by a Catholic bishop. It had been valued at the time at $10,000. The thieves apparently cut it off at its base and hauled it off in a pickup truck. Then... Uh, they, they figured that the 900-pound cross would get them more for its bronze, so they, they cut it all up into small pieces and sold it for scrap metal, earning $450. They obviously didn't realize the value of the cross. But as the gospel writers tell about the crucifixion, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one thing stands out. And that is how the people rejected the Savior, right? Rejection is the theme of the cross. They didn't understand the value of the cross. But do we? Do we understand the value of the cross? What Jesus has done for us? The cross is not merely a religious symbol to wear around our necks. Not that that is wrong. 
It's not just a religious symbol to mark gravestones in a cemetery or locations on the side of the road where someone has died. The cross is the ultimate act of our great high priest who atoned for our sins so that we can live forever with him. He paid the price. We are to hold fast, then, this confession, according to verse 14. Now, that verb means to seize, to apprehend the confession. It was used of taking someone into custody. It was used for arresting a criminal. We are to arrest the confession. We're to seize it. We are to take it into custody in our lives. Look back to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews 3, 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Remember, we, we talked about that. Look at Jesus. Focus on him. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the high priest of our confession. What is the confession? Now, we usually think of the term confess in terms of confessing sins. You know, telling someone our sins, our failures, the confessional, or in personal life, telling someone about our sins. That's usually how we use this term. But it's not the common way it's used in the New Testament. The word confess really is an expression of allegiance or loyalty or agreement. The confession could refer to either the act of confessing or the content of the confession. It can mean we confess or it can mean how we confess. What we confess or how we confess. What we confess is the work of Christ on the cross. The word confess is most often used in the New Testament not for confessing our sins to one another, that's actually a rare use of the term, but for confessing our faith in the cross work of Jesus Christ. That's how it's most commonly used. See, the act of confession is not so much about us and our sins. You know, that's kind of the way confessions go sometimes, don't they? They focus on us and our sins. But in the New Testament, the act of confession was much less on us and our sins. Certainly there is agreement in that, on those issues with God. But it is a confession in His work and what He's done for us that really matters. We can walk around and confess our sins all we want. We can say how bad we are. We can talk about how awful we are and all the awful things we've done. But if we never confess his work on our behalf, what is it good? Nothing. There's no good to it. Salvation comes from his work, not our confession of our sins. So the word confess means to make a statement of allegiance to someone or something. That's what it actually means in the Greek. So our confession is our pledge of allegiance to the cross of Christ by which we are saved. And we are to arrest this confession. We are to seize this pledge of allegiance and never let go. For what Christ has done for us is all that matters in eternity. If you go over to Scotland or Ireland uh, or a number of countries where sheep herding and 
sheep are well known. When I was in Ireland, there's sheep, there's sheep farms everywhere and sheep all over the place. But if you go over there and you're there long enough, I'm told, I've never seen this, but I wasn't there very long, you'll, you'll see a little lamb running around in the field. And you'll notice if you look that this lamb has what looks like an extra fleece tied around it. In fact, there will be holes for its little legs and a hole for its head, and this fleece is tied right around the little lamb. That means that the mother of the lamb has died. Without the protection and nourishment of the mom, the mother lamb, the ewe, the sheep, the little lamb is going to die. And if you take that orphaned lamb to another ewe, she will reject it. She'll butt it away because it doesn't share her scent. It's not a familiar scent. Personally, I think sheep seem distinct all in one stink to me. I, I guess moms know this stink, you know, it's distinctive. But shepherds know over there that most flocks are large enough that some, some other ewe has lost a lamb. And so what they do is they take the little lamb that has died and they skin it. And they put that fleece around the lamb that is still alive. And now the mother will accept the little lamb because when she smells it, it smells like hers. It's a beautiful picture of God and Jesus Christ. We are accepted to God, by God, because we are clothed with Christ. He is our sacrifice, and we are God's own possession because of him. Since we have a priest who feels our struggles, we can come with confidence for his help. Verse 15. For... We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Now, this passage is rich with meaning for every Christian. And we can't even begin to plumb the depths of a passage like this this morning. We suffer, right? Anybody disagree with that in here? Life is hard sometimes. We have struggles. Life doesn't always make sense. We are tempted to sin and we are tested by suffering. All of this is very real to us. We know it, we feel it. The wonderful reality of our high priest is that he knows it and feels it too. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses because he has been tempted to sin and tested by suffering too. A high priest who knows what we feel is someone we can run to with our needs. We know he understands because he too has experienced similar things. The Greek word for sympathize means to feel along with someone. Isn't that beautiful? To feel along with someone. That's hard for us as humans to do with each other sometimes. 
to feel along with someone because if we haven't experienced it, it's very hard to feel with them in what they are going through. But Jesus feels along with every one of us. And it says that he feels along with us with our weaknesses. And the word for weakness can mean to suffer a debilitating disease. That's actually a very common way that this word for weakness is used. It's about debilitating diseases. It also can mean to be weak and helpless in life. It can mean to suffer an infirmity. And it can mean to be morally weak too. Okay. It is the incapacity to do what we want to do. The inability to accomplish our desires that is the primary point of weakness here. The incapacity to do what we really want to do. And we just can't do it because we're weak. Jesus feels along with us in the sufferings of sickness. Weakness is the limitations of life. Are you limited? Yes. Every one of us is limited. Jesus feels alongside of us with the the sickness and the limitations of human life. He knows what it feels like to feel helpless and to trust in God to care for his needs. When Jesus hung on the cross, he let go of all of his powers to save himself, didn't he? He could have taken He was God, right? Could have taken himself off the cross, but he didn't. He let it all go in order to experience the utter helplessness of humanity. When Jesus hung on the cross, he knew the reality of human pain. And he can understand our physical sufferings. Jody Erickson Tata, who was paralyzed from the neck down, used to say that it finally struck her that Jesus knew what it meant to be paralyzed as he hung on that cross and unable to move. And she took great comfort in that reality for her life as a quadriplegic. Do you ever feel like you are unable to do what you would like to do in life because of sickness, weakness, pain, helplessness, That's the weakness that Jesus can feel with you because he has felt it too. Run to the priest who feels your pain. Jesus was tempted in all things yet without sin, the text says. The word tempted can have two very different but basic meanings. First, it can mean that Jesus was tempted to sin, meaning that the devil sought to elicit him into some sinful action. And second, the word can mean that Jesus was tested by trials. We use the word tempt and test to distinguish those two aspects. Both are a part of this word. Both statements, of course, are true. Jesus was tempted to sin, and he was tested by trials and struggles. Let's take a look at it from both perspectives briefly this morning. First of all, we know from Matthew 4 that Jesus was tempted to sin by the devil himself. And yet this verse here tells us that Jesus did not sin. 
literally he was apart from or separate from sin, yet tempted to sin. In fact, theologically, I would say that not only is it true that Jesus did not sin, but because he is God, he could not sin. Some say then that this somehow lessens the temptation. That is, if Jesus could not sin and never did sin, then he doesn't really understand temptation like we have to face it. The assumption is that the capacity for sin is necessary for the experience of temptation. And I don't think that's true at all. Really, I think the opposite is true. Jesus understands sin and temptation better than any human because he is God. Furthermore, Jesus experienced a greater temptation to sin because he could not sin than any human who can sin will ever experience. He understands better than we do the power of temptation. Now, I have made some very significant theological assertions. There are two reasons for making this claim. First, as John MacArthur writes, sinlessness alone can properly estimate sin. His sinlessness increased his sensitivity to sin. Think of it from a purely physical standpoint for a moment. If your skin had never been exposed to the sun, then your skin would be more sensitive to the sun than the skin of someone who was readily and often exposed to the sun. Or another analogy, a body that has never been exposed to bacterial infection is more sensitive to the infection and has to battle it harder because of not having grown up in exposure to that infection. Now, we know that's true physically. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus is God, but he is also fully human. Now, he's perfect human. He is human without sin. So, of course, he never experiences temptation that comes from previous sin. You you do understand that many temptations actually rise out of previous sin. Well, he's not going to experience that particularly because he never sinned. But he has a heightened sensitivity to sin for he grew up never as a perfect human and he had never previously been exposed to sin. So the shock to a perfect human was greater than the shock to one who grew up with sin. Secondly, Who knows more about the power of temptation? The person who gives in or the person who does not? We assume it's the person who gives in. But think about it. Once I reach my limit in temptation and I give in to the temptation, what happens to the temptation? It stops. No more temptation because I've succumbed. I've given in. The minute I succumb to the temptation, the temptation stops. Jesus never succumbed, so he endured far greater temptation than our capacity 
to be tempted. We give in. He never did. Therefore, he endured it beyond our capacity to be tempted. Therefore, Jesus understands the power of temptation on a far greater level than we do. And he knows how to win the battle with temptation because he won it. And don't you want to follow a priest who knows how to win the battle with temptation? Not the one who doesn't. So he endured it all the way through. He endured that temptation way beyond our capacity, for we give in and succumb. So Jesus was tempted to sin, but Jesus was also tested by trials. Let's explore that one for a minute. He suffered in all things as we suffer. Now the literal literal translation would be that Jesus was tested according to all things, according to similarity. Jesus didn't have to suffer every specific pain to understand the principle of pain, right? He didn't have to experience this pain in my elbow, or the one in my thumb, or the one in my big toe, to understand the principle of pain. He experienced suffering according to similarity, according to similar principles of suffering in the human race. Jesus' suffering was on the level of similar sufferings that we go through in life. All right, once again, we come back to this argument. Some argue that since Jesus was God, he could not suffer as much as we suffer, for he had an infinite power to withstand it. And once again, I would argue just exactly the opposite. Jesus suffered far more than we suffer because as God, he could never reach the limits of suffering that we experience as humans. Let me explain. If Jesus has an infinite capacity to save, he has an infinite capacity to suffer. Infinite capacity to suffer. Meaning, he, he has to say, he has to be capable of saving every human who ever has lived, right? He has an infinite capacity to save. Therefore, he must have an infinite capacity to suffer for every human as well. Think about that for a minute. I tell you, this passage is rich and it is deep. And it takes us, and I encourage you to go and study and think and reflect on these matters regarding our high priest. But as many have pointed out, humans have a coping mechanism built into their suffering system. It is called going into shock. Now we know this medically. We know it psychologically. When the body experiences suffering and struggle and pain beyond its capacity to endure, then what does the body do? It shuts down. It goes into shock, and a numbness takes over that protects us from feeling something beyond our capacity to handle. That's what shock is. We become numb to the pain. Now, obviously, people have different levels at which shock takes over, but all humans have this built-in capacity this built-in coping mechanism, and sooner or later, every human reaches their point at which the system goes into shock, and it shuts off the senses to the pain that is beyond what we can handle, whether that is psychological or whether that is physical, biological. I'll leave that for the medical establishment to work out. But we know it happens. 
Jesus had no shock system as God. He experienced every pain to its very fullest extent. Nothing shut off in him. Just as he experienced every temptation to the fullest extent of that temptation from the devil. When Jesus hung on the cross, he experienced pain that the other thieves never experienced, both because he was taking the fullest that the devil could throw at him, and he was experiencing physical pain beyond the shock system's capability that humans have. They would never feel the pain that he felt on the cross, for the body goes into shock. And that is why the New Testament is very clear that Jesus did not succumb to death. He gave his life. That was a conscious choice to give up his life. Theologically, Jesus was not defeated by death. He never died. He never succumbed to death and the, the, the horror of the body and, the, and all of the shutdown mechanisms that go into place to bring about death never happened to Jesus. What did he do? He gave his life. He chose to give it when he was finished. Not when death was finished. When he was finished as the Son of God, he gave his life for you and for me. Into your hands I commend my spirit, Father. For I have beaten him, the devil. And I have beaten it death. So he experienced it way beyond anything you or I could ever have the capacity to experience. And he experienced similar sufferings way beyond our capacity to experience the sufferings and the struggles that we face. I like what theologian Jürgen Moltmann wrote. God weeps with us so that we may someday laugh with him. That's why verse 16 is so powerful. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. So after we have seen how much Jesus has been tempted to sin and how much Jesus has been tested by the trials of this life so that he knows in, similar, in similarity to what you have to experience in terms of disease and struggle and pain and temptation. He's done all that. That means that he understands our experience, doesn't it? And when we are going through some trial, when we feel totally helpless to do an incapacity to do what we want to do, then it's easy to feel like no one really understands. Well, I, I don't have anybody to share it with because nobody really understands what I'm going through. And to a certain extent, that's true, isn't it, on the human level? But Jesus does. See, that's the beauty of this whole passage. Jesus does understand. So you run to the priest who feels your pain, you see. You go to him. 
He went through sufferings of a similar nature. He understands what I feel and what you feel. And so we can approach or draw near the throne of grace with confidence. The word confidence is a, is a favorite word in Hebrews. It means a state of boldness or frankness or openness. We can be outspoken with God. We can be frank and fearless with what we say to God. Now think about that for a minute too. That is absolutely amazing to me that I can say whatever I want to say to God. The God of this universe. Me. I can say whatever I want to say to Him. I can be bold and open and confident and frank as long as I'm coming through Jesus Christ, you see. For He has paved the way for my openness. That's amazing. We can run to the throne of grace. Now, isn't that a great expression too? Throne of grace. What what ideas and images the author is putting together here. God's throne, the throne of judgment, has become for the Christian not the throne of judgment, but the throne of grace, what we don't deserve. And we can run to the throne of grace with confidence. We deserve judgment, but he's already paid for it. So we find mercy instead when we come to the throne of grace. And we will receive mercy and grace from Jesus. He will provide help in our time of need. Literally, the expression means that he provides timely help. He provides timely help. His help comes at the perfect time to meet our needs. Not ahead of time, not after the time that we need it, not before, not later, not not too early, not too late. God's time, God's watch is always perfectly timed. (laughs) He knows exactly when you need and what you need, and he meets that need in his time. Isn't that beautiful? Mercy and grace for timely help. It sounded like a good idea at the time. Indonesian, the Indonesian president, whose name I can't pronounce, wanted to, wanted to emphasize his desire to help the people cut through bureaucracy and red tape. So he announced on public television that he was giving out his cell phone number. And that way they could contact him directly and they would cut through the bureaucracy of the system and get help. Well, he, he received so many text messages that within one day it completely overwhelmed the system and it had to be shut down. One day after he invited citizens to contact him directly. Well, folks, God has a much simpler and foolproof system for cutting through the bureaucracy and red tape of the universe. You can contact him directly through Jesus Christ. And it never fails, and he never needs an IT team, and he never needs any other assistance. You can go directly to him. Call on the Lord. He answers all messages, and he's never out of range. That's the Lord. A marathon, for most runners, seems very long. It would to me. We have a friend who just ran the marathon. Whoops. I'm really getting good at this. You know? (laughs) 
Ah, there we go. All right. We have a friend who ran in the marathon uh, earlier this fall. 26.2 miles, right? Every marathon is always 26.2 miles, right? Well, supposed to be. But Lakeshore Marathon held in Chicago on Memorial Day weekend 2005. That day, the 529 runners who finished actually ran 27.2 miles. One mile more than they were supposed to, only nobody told them at the time. Imagine running a marathon, and now you have to run one mile longer, right? The whole race was a mess with missing mile markers, confused directions. One woman who had been leading early on got completely turned around. I was so confused she said I wanted to cry. The organizer issued an apology kind of on his website. He said, last minute changes caused us to miscalculate and we foolishly added an extra mile. How terrible. I'll bet he wasn't running. Maybe life's been like that for you this week. Somebody added a mile <laughs> to the marathon. Or through a curve. There was an impossible deadline thrown at you. Sickness, a sick child, another one. An overdue notice on a bill, a letter from the IRS. I don't know what it was. But when you feel like you've been forced to run farther than anybody should have to, it helps to remember that the Lord ran farther than you. And he knows. And you can come running to the Lord. And he will give you, what does this text say? Timely help for whatever you're facing. For the day ahead. Not in advance. He's not, not necessarily going to fix it for the next six months. But for today, he'll give you what you need. F.B. Meyer wrote, There are two causes, therefore, why many Christians are living such impoverished lives. They have never realized their own infinite need, and they have never availed themselves of those infinite resources. Do we run to the Lord? The resources are infinite. It's only when we come to the end of ourselves that, that we find the beginning of His mercy and grace. We can boldly draw near to the the throne of grace. We can find Christ's mercy seat to meet our needs in his perfect timing. Being from the south, David Slagle loves ribs. I don't know if you like ribs. That is the messiest meal to eat possible, but it is sure good. And he tells about a particular restaurant that had, an amazing, had amazing ribs. And he and a bunch of friends drove 50 minutes to get to this restaurant. The place was packed. The food was great. It was all-you-can-eat rib night. And rib bones were piling up as fast as the line to get in. Now, you know that that's a messy business, and there's stuff all over you, and the tablecloth, and the napkins, and you go through about 200 napkins. When they'd eaten all they could eat, they paid the tab, and they headed out to their car. And that's when he reached into the pocket for his keys, and he came up with nothing but lint. Starting to panic, he looked through the car window to see if it was in the ignition, and it wasn't because he was hoping it was there because a very bad thought was coming to his head. Sure enough, he knew where his keys were. 
when he had dumped his tray full of corn cobs, bones, sauce, napkins. There went his keys. Right down there. They'd slid right off his tray and into the trash. He'd thrown away his keys on all-you-can-eat rib night. (laughs) And it was a long walk home. And his friends weren't about to help him at all. And so, he did what he had to do. He dove in. He said he fished through bones, beans, barbecue, corn, cake, coleslaw, and a host of saliva-soaked napkins. A shiny layer of trash can slime had coated his arms before he finally grasped hold of those precious keys. Got him! You're not getting in my car. (laughs) David writes... As I meditate on the incarnation, that's God becoming man at Christmas, this Christmas time, I think about our dumpster diving God. I mean no disrespect by calling him a dumpster diving God. On the contrary, I have a soaring adoration for the infinite God who left a pristine, sinless heaven to search through the filth and rubbish of this fallen world for something precious to him, me. And God did that for you too. And he's not about to give up on you now. Father, thank you for your son. Lord Jesus, we run to you, for you alone truly understand our struggles, our weaknesses, our temptations, our pain. And we find mercy and grace in our time of need from you. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Hymn number 351.